0: Well, here we are at our second Sunday night of the month again, which means we do what we do every second Sunday night of the month here at the Franklin Church. If you are guests, this is our special night that we reserve for questions and answers. However, I'm not nearly so talented as to wait until tonight to ask for them from the floor, so we have everybody submit them beforehand, and I've got a few questions that we're going to be dealing with tonight. Tonight we're actually going to be dealing with some very sensitive questions, and of course. I'm going to be giving you what I believe the Bible says about these questions and the answers to them. We've got four of them that we're going to be dealing with tonight. Just so you'll know, if you would like to submit a question, all you have to do is there's a little form out there on the phone stand out out beside the office. Fill that out, drop it in the slot on the box beside the office door, and when we can fit that in, we'll certainly do that. So tonight, let's just get right into the thick of it and look at question number one. Can Christians... Take scholarship money that's coming from the Tennessee Lottery. No doubt this question stems from the lesson we had back on February 1st where we pointed out that covetous activities like the lottery should not be participated in by Christians. We need to avoid that sort of activity. The second natural question from that, which I avoided like the plague when I preached the lesson but couldn't afterwards, was could Christians accept grant money, the scholarship money that comes from the Tennessee Lottery? And so let me share with you what I believe the Bible demonstrates about that. First of all, I think we need to have a very certain understanding of how our government and the money that they get from us works. We understand that our government sold the state of Tennessee on the lottery by saying, oh, if we get the lottery, we'll take this money and provide educational grants and scholarships. But we are also smart enough to know that that is not how government and money works. When our government, whether it's national, state, or county, decides to set up their budgets, what they do is they consider where is all the money that we're going to have, how much of it are we going to get from all the various forms, and then based on that, they're going to budget it out. They're not sitting there saying, now where did it come from to decide where it's going to go? And so... It's really kind of difficult for us just to ask the question, what about scholarship grants? We actually have to ask now, can we be involved in anything that our state decides to do? Because you better believe any of the money they get from the lottery is going to go to anything and everything as they just budget out this massive money they have to all the work that the state government is going to do. The second thing that we need to understand... And that is, is that this is really just a surface question that's going to break our way into dozens, hundreds of other questions if we start taking this step. For instance, can a Christian store owner accept money to buy goods in his store from somebody who's won the lottery? Can a Christian sell his car to somebody who owns a liquor store? Do you recognize that your salary from wherever you work was probably generated, but from somewhere, from somebody for buying goods or selling goods, and that person was probably getting their money through doing something sinful at some point? We might ask the question, can we ride on the roads that are paid for by the sin tax? The purchase of alcohol. There are all kinds of things in which money is generated in government and in business between us that the origination of that money is questionable. The question we have to ask is, does God expect us to do background checks on any of the money that ever comes our way in any of its various forms? I don't believe He does. I think there's a principle in 1 Corinthians chapter 5 and verse 10. First Corinthians chapter 5 and verse 10. But I think we can use a very similar principle as we deal with this issue. In First Corinthians five and verse nine, Paul wrote this I wrote to you in my epistle not to keep company with sexually immoral people. Yet I certainly did not mean with the sexually immoral people of this world or with the covetousness or with the covetous or extortioners or idolaters, since then you would need to go out of the world. His point was we're not going to establish rules about you staying away from folks who are sinners, because if we establish that rule, the only way to be consistent is to go out of the world. And brethren, it's very much the same with this question. The only way we can be consistent in talking about having background checks on all the money that you might get and making sure that it didn't originate through some sinful means is you're going to have to go out of the world. Because when you take a look at it, let's just say that somebody is buying something from you and they work at Walmart. Guess where part of their salary came from? The alcohol that was sold at Walmart went to pay part of their salary. Are you allowed to accept that money from them since it was generated from alcohol? When you take a look at the lottery, some of the money in dealing with all of this is going to go to pay for those who are involved in it, those who are doing the ins and outs of it. What if they wanted to purchase something from you? Could you deal with that? The fact is, if we're going to try to run every bit of money that comes our way to its most original source... The only way we can be consistent with that is just to leave the world entirely. Because probably much of it comes through various means that would come back to something originally sinful. There's a great deal of it that would do that. God doesn't expect us to go through that amount. When the government has the money, it's now their money, and they're free to do with it what they want. And if you want to accept a college scholarship grant from them, I believe you can. However, let me say in the same sense that us paying our taxes does not mean we condone everything our government does with those taxes, in the same way receiving money from the government does not condone everything the government does to receive money. But make sure that you abide within the realm of your conscience. Romans chapter 14 and verse 23. In Romans chapter 14... And verse 23, the Scripture says, But he who doubts is condemned if he eats, because he does not eat from faith. For whatever is not from faith is sin. If you believe that accepting college grant money from the state of Tennessee that seems to come from the lottery, if you believe that means you're condoning the lottery, then by all means, avoid that money like the plague. But if you can recognize within your conscience that you're not condoning that, you're just receiving the state grant money, as you might if they got the money from some other source, then by all means, don't feel like I'm going to condemn you or that you're doing something that's sinful. I don't believe that you are. I know that for some that's going to seem inconsistent because I'm going to remind you that participating in the Tennessee Lottery, participating in it is nothing more than covetousness. You're wanting to bring to yourself what belongs to someone else. And that's what that is. Uh, But once the government has the money, it's theirs. And they're going to do with it what they want, even if they received it from sinful means. Just like once the store owners have the money, even if they got it by selling liquor or pornographic magazines. Once the abortion doctors have their money. Once the false teachers are paid for their services, they're getting their money. And now it's theirs, and they're going to do with it what they want. And we don't have to run the background checks on it. I hope you can understand my reasoning for giving that answer. Question number two. Last time... In our question and answer session, a question came up about women in the congregational assemblies and speaking out loud and addressing the assemblies and various things that we talked about. And I encourage you, if you weren't here for that session, to get that tape the second Sunday of February. But from that, the question came up, single women, how do they ask their own husbands at home? You remember we pointed out that First Timothy chapter 2 and verse 12 says, beginning of verse 11, "...let a woman learn in silence with all submission." And I do not permit a woman to teach or to have authority over a man, but to be in silence. We also recognize from that general principle that Paul dealt with a very specific situation in Corinth and a problem with which the Corinthian church was dealing. And in 1 Corinthians chapter 14, beginning at verse 34, Paul said, 1 Corinthians 14, 34, "...let your women keep silent in the churches, for they are not permitted to speak, but they are to be submissive, as the law also says." And if they want to learn something, let them ask their own husbands at home, for it is shameful for women to speak in church. The natural question that folks ask as they look at this verse is, well, what about single women? They don't have husbands to ask at their home. Does that mean then that the general principle of 1 Timothy chapter 2 and verse 12 only applies to married women? That once women become married, they're now to be submissive. But before that, they're allowed to disrupt assemblies. They're allowed to address the assembly and to usurp authority and to teach and have authority over men. Is that what God is demonstrating to us? I don't believe so. Back up to 1 Corinthians chapter 7 and verse 1. In 1 Corinthians chapter 7 and verse 1, notice a very interesting point about what Paul is writing in the rest of this letter. In 1 Corinthians chapter 7 and verse 1, Paul says, "...now..." concerning the things of which you wrote to me. The Corinthian church had written to Paul and asked him some questions. We don't have any idea what those questions were. We don't know what they were specifically. We obviously, I say we don't have any idea, that's an overstatement. We know that they had something to do with marriage. We know that they had something to do with spiritual gifts. We know that they had something to do with division in the church. But as far as specifically what those questions were, we don't know. i tell you what we do know is that Whatever those questions were, Paul answered correctly. In 1 Corinthians 14.37, Paul said, If anyone thinks himself to be a prophet or spiritual, let him acknowledge that the things which I write to you are the commandments of the Lord. This is not just good advice. This is not just Paul's think so. This is not just the words of some male chauvinist allowing his egotism to get away with him. Paul says, understand that I am writing the Lord's command." But keep in mind that Paul is writing about specific situations. And so in 1 Corinthians chapter 14 and verse 34 and 35, when he says if they want to learn something, let them ask their own husbands at home, what we learn from that is not that the general principle of the Bible is restricted to those who are married, but rather that the particular issue about which the Corinthian church was worried had to deal with married women whose husbands were in the church. Because when Paul was addressing their problem... He answered it by pointing out that these particular women who are trying to address the assembly and camouflaging it, saying all they're doing is asking questions and wanting to learn. He said they need to ask their husbands at home. That's it. He's dealing with their very specific situation. And so we asked, what about those who are single women? I believe we can learn from the principles taught here how to deal with that. Paul wasn't dealing with single women. He wasn't dealing with widows. He was dealing with married women, so he answered the question from that standpoint. But the principles are still the same. And so what, what might we tell somebody who is a single woman that doesn't have a husband to ask at home? If Paul was writing to them, he would say, tell them to ask their fathers at home. Or if they didn't have Christian fathers or Christian husbands, he would say to them, tell them to talk to the elders outside the assembly. But whatever the case, we remember that the general principle of First Timothy chapter 2 and verse 12 still stands. In 1 Timothy chapter 2, beginning at verse 11, Let a woman learn in silence with all submission, and I do not permit a woman to teach or to have authority over a man, but to be in silence. For Adam was formed first, then Eve. And Adam was not deceived, but the woman being deceived fell into transgression. As long as Eve was the one who was deceived, as long as she was the one who fell first, then this command of God stands. And we need to recognize, whether married or single, within the church, Just out of a role of practicality, the Lord demonstrates to us that our sisters are to learn in submission and not have authority over the brothers in the church, the men in the church, whether single or married. Question three, which also stems from this discussion that we had last time. Can a woman teach a boy who has obeyed the gospel? Within the church, of course, we would recognize that one of our adult classes, women are not to teach or have authority over a man in the church, and so we would not have women teaching in one of our Bible classes over men. But what about the, the boys who become Christians? Eleven, twelve, thirteen. It's amazing. It seems to be getting younger every year. I don't know all the reasons for that, but does, does that automatically mean that women are no longer allowed to teach in those classes? We go back to Second 2 Timothy 2.12. I do not permit a woman to ha- teach or to have authority over a man but to be in silence. So our first question is, what does that word man mean? The word man here translates the Greek word aner, which simply means man. But interestingly, look at 1 Corinthians chapter 13 and verse 11. 1 Corinthians chapter 13 and verse 11. Paul said in 1 Corinthians chapter 13 and verse 11, When I was a child, I spoke as a child. I understood as a child. I thought as a child. But when I became a man... I put away childish things. What we learn from this passage is that the word man does not just refer to anyone who is male. It refers to an adult male. And we also learn that it doesn't have to do with just becoming a Christian or not. It has to do with being an adult male. There is a time at which someone goes from childhood to adulthood. And for boys, they go from being boys to being men. And what we recognize is that obeying the gospel does not make men out of boys. It makes Christians out of boys. And that's all. And I want you to realize that on a very practical level, we all understand that. Because if we began to believe that they're made a man when they become a Christian, why don't we boot them out of the house and make them live on their own and provide for their families? Because we realize they're not men. And they're not there for the responsibilities of men, They've devoted their life to Christ. They've received forgiveness of their sins, but they have not become men. And so we ask ourselves the question, when then do they become men? The fact is, brethren, we don't have a line. Certainly, I look out in this audience and I see a great majority of males who I would say beyond a shadow of a doubt are men. And there are some that I can look out and say beyond a shadow of a doubt, they're boys. I know two of them that live with me. But where's that line that we go from boys to men? I don't know. Some suggest if you're mature enough to become a Christian, that means you're a man. But we've already demonstrated that in reality, practically, we don't believe that. Some might go back to the Old Testament and notice from passages like Numbers chapter 14, and beginning at verse 29. In Numbers chapter 14, beginning at verse 29, "...the carcasses of you who have complained against me shall fall in this wilderness, all of you who were numbered according to your entire number from twenty years old and above." Except for Caleb, the son of Jephunneh, and Joshua, the son of Nun, you shall by no means enter the land which I swore I would make you dwell in. But your little ones, whom you said would be victims, I will bring in, and they shall know the land which you have despised. The little ones would come in. Who are the little ones? Anybody who is 20 years and below? They were going to come in. But the adults, 21 and above, would not make it. God had a line there. We look at Numbers chapter 26, verse 2. We see that line demonstrated again. Numbers chapter 26 and verse 2. Take a census of all the congregation of the children of Israel from 20 years old and above by their fathers' houses, all who are able to go to war in Israel. Now, some might go back to that line and say, see, if they're 20 years old, they become men, and that's where we draw the line. And yet, if that's the case, why do we allow our 17, 18, and 19-year-old boys to join the military and go to war? Because we realize they're men. And so I don't think that that line necessarily is dogmatic. Secondly, that's under the old law, and we're not under the old law anymore. Some would say, well, we start giving men-like responsibilities when we let them drive at 16. Some might say when we let them vote at 18. Some might even go to the very worldly standard and say, well, we let them drink at 21. Which actually, if you're Christian, by the way, we don't let you drink at any age, if you're going to live faithfully, by the way. But, what do we say about all this? I'll tell you what we say is that God didn't provide a line for us here. And so what He's done is He's left it up to our judgment. Where are we going to make the distinction? And what this means is that for us as a congregation, we have to develop our own policy. We recognize something that's unlawful. Sisters are not allowed to have authority over men in the congregation. We have to make sure we're not violating that. My personal judgment is that some are right about high school. I think we should draw the line. While I realize that there might be some leeway in that area in which sisters can can teach over these young men or boys and not be violating the Scripture, I'm pretty certain we're safe if we make the line at about high school. But that's about the best I can tell you, and that's my judgment. And every congregation is going to have to make the determination for themselves. Question number four. Man, we're moving through these a lot more quickly than I thought. Question number four. Can can Christians listen to contemporary Christian music or gospel music that is accompanied by mechanical musical instruments? If you are our guest here tonight and not familiar with the position of the congregation, we recognize from Scripture that we can only do what's authorized. And when it comes to our worship, what we find in the New Testament is only singing. We don't find mechanical instruments used to worship God. And yet, and if you want to know more about that, we can study that later. We're not getting into that tonight. And yet there's the question, what about this stuff that we get on the radios and that we can buy in tapes, Christian contemporary that's becoming so popular, that's not in the Congregational Assembly. What about that? Can we do that? First of all, let me point out that there are so many facets to this question that there is absolutely no way for me to cover all the angles or deal with all the issues. And by the time we're done here tonight, I am certain that some of you will have a but-what-if question. I cannot answer all of those. And there's a very real sense in which many of the questions in dealing with these issues are going to have to be left up to personal conscience. Regarding particular songs or particular groups, if you believe that you can listen to them without violating God's command, I will have to allow you to have your conscience. And you'll have to allow me to have mine. Again, we remember Romans 14 and verse 23. In Romans 14 and verse 23, he who doubts is condemned if he eats because he doesn't eat from faith, for whatever's not from faith is sin. I don't have all the questions about every song that's out there about every group. One of the other things I think we need to point out here is that this question seems to assume that we can just shove every kind of music into a particular kind of genre as contemporary Christian or gospel music. And folks, it just doesn't work that way. There are some groups that are strong in labeling themselves as Christian, but when you listen to their music, their message is so veiled that you'd never know what they were talking about. And it can be understood in completely secular ways. But there are also some other groups that are that refuse to receive the label Christian, and yet they wear spirituality on their sleeve. And so we can't answer it just by saying, oh, they call themselves a Christian group, or they call themselves a gospel group, or they don't. We just can't answer it simplistically like that. The next thing that I want to point out to you is that when you look at this question, this question actually asks one question, but the important issue is another question. This question asks, can we listen to this kind of music? As though just hearing a particular kind of music might automatically condemn our souls to hell. Now, that's not the case. The Bible never once addresses what kind of music we can listen to or not listen to in that kind of sense. What it addresses is how we worship God. That's the question. Can we worship God with mechanical instruments of music, either accompanying or in place of our singing, whether here in the assembly or outside? One of the sad facts about our day is that we've spent so much time debating this regarding denominations and churches that all we ever think about is when we're right here. And we read all the passages in the New Testament as if they're talking about what we do when we're right here. Do you realize that in the Scripture, the New Testament rarely ever differentiates between what we do in our individual worship and what's going on in the congregation? Look at the passages that talk about musical worship in the New Testament. Acts chapter 16 and verse 25. But at midnight, Paul and Silas were praying and singing hymns to God, and the prisoners were listening to them. Here's individuals. What were they doing? They were singing. 1 Corinthians chapter 14. 1 Corinthians chapter 14 and verse 15. Paul says, what is the conclusion then? I'll pray with the Spirit and I'll also pray with the understanding. I'll sing with the Spirit and I'll also sing with the understanding. Here's in the congregational assembly. What did they do? They sang. Ephesians chapter 5 and verse 19 In Ephesians chapter 5 and verse 19, Paul said, "...speaking to one another in psalms and hymns and spiritual songs, singing and making melody in your heart to the Lord." What did they do? They sang. And where was the melody made? In their heart. Colossians chapter 3 and verse 16. Colossians chapter 3 and verse 16. "...let the word of Christ dwell in you richly in all wisdom." teaching and admonishing one another in psalms and hymns and spiritual songs, singing with grace in your hearts to the Lord. James chapter 5. James chapter 5. And verse 13. Is anyone among you suffering? Let him pray. Is anyone cheerful? Let him sing psalms. I accidentally skipped one. Look at Hebrews chapter 2. Hebrews chapter 2. And verse 12. Saying, I will declare your name to my brethren in the midst of the assembly. I will sing praise to you. If we're going to be a people that demands authority for everything we do from the Scripture, remember 2 Timothy 3, 16 and 17. The Scripture provides equipping for every good work. If we can't find equipping for it from the Scripture, then it's not a good work no matter what we think about it. We can't find equipping from the New Testament for the use of mechanical instruments of music to worship God, whether as a congregation, as a family, or as an individual. There is no more equipping for worshiping God with mechanical instruments of music in your home, in your car or in the concert hall, then there is equipping for doing it right here when we gather as the assembly. You can't find it. So what can I say beyond doubt in my mind? And that is, is that we cannot worship God with mechanical instruments of music, whether as individuals or as assemblies. There's no authority for that. Now, if you, as some who I've talked with, believe that you can listen without worshipping, I don't have anything to say to that. I I don't know what to tell you. I will tell you this. I was brought up in the Baptist church. And as I was brought up in the Baptist church, what I was trained in was that listening to that music is worship. Most folks think they're worshipping, and when you're listening and sing along with them, you're worshipping with them. And so I have a very hard time making a distinction and saying that you can listen without worshiping. But if you believe you can, I'll leave that up to your conscience. Please allow me mine. But I do know this, you can't worship using instruments of music. There's nothing in the Scripture that allows that anywhere, under any circumstances, unless you want to be an Old Testament Jew. Which, that's not what I want to be. I want to be a New Testament Christian. However, If you believe that you can listen without worshiping, please allow me to give you a few things to think about. If you're listening because you say, this helps me put my thoughts where they ought to be, this focuses my attention on God and on godly things, but I'm not worshiping, please explain to me your definition of worship because I believe that when something is focusing my attention on God and causing me to think about how awesome and wonderful He is and drawing me closer to Him, guess what that is? That's worship. And so I have a hard time making that distinction. Secondly, if you really are listening and singing along with it, saying all these religious and spiritual words, but all you're doing is being entertained and giving it no more than a passing flippant notice, Maybe you're not worshiping, but are you having another problem that you're dealing with spiritual things in a vain, worldly way? Which I think could be just as much a problem as worshiping God incorrectly. Just some things for you to think about if you're doing that. And thirdly, I'll tell you what, I think it's very difficult for us to say that a lot of this music that's out on the airwaves and on CDs and tapes actually puts our minds in the right place place to be thinking. Because having been brought up on it, and having been exposed to it as much I, as I have with all the radio work that I've done, the fact is, what I've learned is that most of it doesn't put our minds in the right place because most of it's filled with error and false teaching about salvation, about Christ's kingdom, about His church, about the second coming, about miraculous spiritual gifts, about the Bible, and about revelation. And it's very dangerous for us to be filling our minds with false teaching, even if it's coming across the radio waves. In song. Just some things for you to think about as you live within the realm of your conscience. There was a second half to this question. It seems that the person who wrote it presumed that I was going to tell you to steer clear of this music, which is essentially what I'm trying to tell you to do. They asked, well, if not, why can we listen to honky-tonk music but not to something that helps us get our thoughts where they should be? Well, first of all, I don't know why any of you want to listen to honky-tonk music to begin with. I mean, that's nasally, it's depressing, it's just awful. I mean, you know, that stuff comes on the radio, it's time to change the channel. But if you're into that sort of thing, can you do it? Well, this questioner presumes that I'm going to say you can, and yeah, I I believe you can. Why do I believe that? Well, because the Bible demonstrates that there's a place for music in our lives separate and apart from worship. And God hasn't placed any restrictions on that. In fact, very interestingly, Jesus and His apostles recognize music in our world. Jesus, in Luke chapter 7, as he was describing how the people had dealt differently, or actually the same, with John the Baptist and with him, he said, it's just like children in the marketplace, Luke 7:32. Children in the marketplace, they call to one another saying, we played the flute for you and you didn't dance. We mourned to you and you didn't weep. The New American Standard says, we sing a dirge. Here's the recognition of music, separate and apart from worship. Jesus recognized that in our lives. Paul, in 1 Corinthians chapter 13, 1 Corinthians chapter 13 and verse 1, understood that there was music in the world and that we had understanding of it and there wasn't anything wrong with it. He says, Though I speak with the tongues of men and of angels, but have not love, I have become sounding brass or a clanging cymbal. He recognized that musical instruments were out there and if they were going to be used, they ought to be used to make some kind of harmony. If they're just making noise, they're kind of useless. Look also at chapter 14 in verse 7. He says in 14 and 7, 1 Corinthians 14, 7, Even things without life, whether flute or harp, when they make a sound, unless they make a distinction in the sounds, how will it be known what is piped or played? For if the trumpet makes an uncertain sound, who will prepare for battle? He recognized again the use of music outside of worship. And it's supposed to have harmony and it's going to have a beat. And we all understand that. Otherwise, the musical instruments absolutely useless. Paul understood that. Further, Paul recognized the fact that we might be entertained and we might read and be involved in things that are not strictly of a Christian nature. That is not just something that came out of the Bible or has to do with directly getting us straight to heaven. In Acts chapter 27 and verse 28, Paul demonstrated that he read poetry even from pagan poets. For in him we live and move and have our being as also some of your own poets have said. For we are also his offspring. Keep in mind that while Paul is making the point about God, The author of that poem wasn't talking about Jehovah, because this was talking about the pagan poets. Just talking about their relationship to what they viewed as deity. He was just making a point, but he had read it. He'd also recognized the avenues of entertainment, 1 Corinthians chapter 9. In 1 Corinthians chapter 9, as Paul makes a point about Christianity and how we ought to live, he used as an example one of the major forms of entertainment during this day. In 1 Corinthians 9 and verse 24, he said, Do you not know that those who run in a race all run, but one receives the prize? Run in such a way that you may obtain it. And everyone who competes for the prize is tempered in all things. Now, they do it to obtain a perishable crown, but we for an imperishable crown. Therefore I run thus, not with uncertainty. Thus I fight, not as one who beats the air. Here is the person who understood the entertainment of the day. These folks were going to boxing matches. These folks were watching people race. They were being entertained by things that weren't spiritual. Paul understood that. And I believe we can as well. However, having said that, are we allowed to just listen indiscriminately? Are we allowed to listen and watch anything that we want to? Our questioner said something about listening to something that puts your thoughts where they should be. i tell you what I'm really worried about is listening and watching things that put our thoughts where they should not be. As I said a minute ago, I don't understand why anybody would listen to honky-tonk music, but the fact is probably some of you would never understand why I listen to the music I listen to. I'm a rocker. I love rock music. I like heavy guitars and strong beats. I like it to be fast and I like it to be hard. I listen to rock music that goes all the way back to Elvis and the Beatles and all the way up to Creed and Evanescence. I was brought up in the 80s and I love listening to 80 stations that play Def Leppard and Guns N' Roses and Poison and Bon Jovi. and I even like some songs from Kiss and ACDC. Okay? I'm the guy that when I pull into the parking lot, Marita makes me turn the radio down so that y'all won't hear it. All right? That's me. Can I listen to all of it, though? Absolutely not. Even those groups I just mentioned, that I like some of their songs. What I've learned is that as a Christian, I have to be discriminating. I can't listen to everything that's out there just because I like the beats. Ephesians chapter 5. Ephesians chapter 5. And verse 11. Ephesians 5 and verse 11 says, Have no fellowship with the unfruitful works of darkness, but rather expose them. For it is shameful even to speak of those things which are done by them in secret. If it's shameful to speak of them that are done in secret, then it's shameful to listen to it and to watch the video. So much of what's out there glorifies sin as it talks about drinking and sexual immorality and drug use and so many other things. Christians, are we allowed to be entertained by things that are secular? Certainly we are. But we've got to be discriminating and recognize that evil communications corrupt good morals, even when it's in a song that's got a nice beat and a neat tune. And you know what? It doesn't matter whether you're talking about the rock music, because I know you country fans believe that country music is sent from God. I know you do. I was brought up by, uh, my dad believed that rock music was from the devil and God invented country music. And we're sitting here listening to There's a Tear in My Beer. You know, I mean, come on. Uh, I've got friends in low places. What's that one about? I mean, and we like to point the finger at rock music and rap, but country, honky-tonk, it doesn't matter what you're talking about. Frank Sinatra probably even has some bad ones. And I know some of you old folks like to look back with joy on those old years when all the music was clean. And I can't even tell you some of the names of some of the songs I know because it would be inappropriate to say it from the pulpit. They come back from the 50s and the 60s. So it doesn't matter what kind of music you listen to. Are you allowed to be entertained by secular things? Certainly. But make sure you're not in fellowship with evil works because of what you're listening and what you're watching. Well, there you go. Very sensitive issues. I have no doubt that either my box is going to be full or I'm going to be accosted on the way out based on some of these things here tonight. I hope that I've been able to demonstrate to you biblically why I believe what I believe, and I hope I've been able to help you answer some of these questions. One of the things that I believe is that if one person asks them, there's probably a dozen others that are thinking about it that have not not asked. So please, if you have any questions, please feel free. Go out there, fill out the form, put it in the box, and we'll get to it. If I can't get to it in a sermon, then I'll certainly at least write an answer to you, if you put your name on it. If you don't put your name on it, I won't know who to talk to So if you have any questions, please feel free to submit those. If you'd like to get together and study sometime on any issue, please feel free. I'd love to do that with you.